Welcome to Walking in Faith, a weekly podcast dedicated to examining the Bible to help lifelong seekers of the kingdom of God expand their faith and understanding by exploring God's Word. Now let's join Pastor Rob Currington as he shares this week's message. Have you ever had someone observe you with suspicion, looking to find fault? Have you ever had that type of thing? Maybe it's at work, at school, uh, maybe employee or employer. You just you can just feel that someone is waiting for you to make a mistake. Have you ever experienced that? That's not a good feeling, is it? Uh, you know, I remember as children, you know, we're always trying to catch our children doing something wrong. When, one time back, a lifetime ago, I was a dean of a Christian school, a little small Christian school. And one of my jobs was to help kids to manage their time and to progress in doing their work. So my job was to go around and watch them, make sure they were on task doing their work and not mess around things of that sort. And you know, what you're usually doing is in that mindset, you're catching to find that one kid that's talking to another kid, right? Or that one kid that's doodling rather than doing his work. One kid that's just just not doing what he's supposed to do. And And I struggled with that. I mean, because all you do is you're just creating conflict the whole time. There's not, that's not a very good way to motivate someone. And so eventually, you know, we adopted the practice of which they always tell us is, is try to catch someone doing well. And so once it was pretty clear which students struggled, I would try to find ways in which they were doing things well that we had instructed them to do, whether it was manage their time, doing their work, and so on and so forth. And I found by using that positive, uh, you know, reinforcement that that was much more beneficial than always waiting just to slam someone. And many times you and I understand that's how we parent, right? We're just ready to bring that hammer down. And our kids are looking at it. They're just waiting for us to, you know, to put it down. And you can see it in their face. You can see it in their eyes. There's something about just trying to find something good and then encourage them and praise them in public for those types of things. However, we all have experiences with those who enjoy catching people doing something wrong. And that's what we're going to see as we open up to Luke chapter 14. Over the last few months, we've been reading of the Trinity's purposeful sovereignty, meaning that all that transpires in this world comes from God's hand and that it serves a particular purpose. This has been demonstrated through the determination of Christ to keep his divine appointment in Jerusalem at the cross. Traveling through the village, various villages and towns, On his way, Jesus has been preaching, has been teaching, healing, and instructing his disciples on what it truly means to be a a disciple of Christ, to follow him. We've learned that purposeful sovereignty should give us a confident, courageous determination as well. As we face the trials of life, knowing that everything that you and I encounter in life, the good, the bad, the ugly, is all part of God's sovereign plan for our lives. And I pray over this last month or so, maybe you've been now viewing life a little bit different. Whether it's you're stuck at a red light, you're getting hit by someone while stuck at a red light, uh, you're, 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 you're going out through work and things are going on, or just in the news that you're understanding that things are in God's hands. And hopefully that's bringing you maybe a little bit more confidence, a little bit more encouragement, and not bringing you to so much despair. It's very, very difficult. When we recognize that, or it's much easier to deal with the difficult times when we understand that God's hand is behind the very littlest of things. The Bible says that man throws the dice, but God actually decides 
where it goes. So think of that the next time you think you want to go off to the Indian Casino Resort, uh, whether or not your luck is with you or not. It's God who decides even the most littlest things. There are no coincidences or accidents in life. As we move on to chapter 14 of Luke, we see the wisdom and compassion of Jesus once again on display in contrast to the hostility and the anger and the silence of the religious leaders. As Jesus is invited to a dinner at the house of a prominent leader of the Pharisees, and once again he is in immediate conflict regarding the Sabbath day. So in Luke chapter 14, reading starting in verse 1, it's here on the monitors. Again, I want to encourage you to bring your Bibles or something that you can write on, take some notes. We have some message papers back there. I think writing on your Bible is such a great way. So if you have a tablet or a phone that you can do that to take notes, I really want to encourage you to develop that habit. And you'll find that things will stay with you uh, much longer as than regular than just what we're doing here for the next you know, 40, 45 minutes. So in Luke chapter 14, starting with verse 1, it says on the Sabbath, or one Sabbath, excuse me, when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. Behold, there was a man before before him who had dropsy. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and the Pharisees saying, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. You may want to just underline that phrase. That's an important phrase as we go through there. Then he took him and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, which of you having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. Father, I thank you for your word. It has been preserved for over 2,000 years for us. And it is as relevant today as it was then and to the original readers of Luke's gospel. And even to the eyewitness accounts, those who gave this account to Luke. So, Father, I pray that you help us make, a, make it come alive. Help us to understand for it's here for a reason. And so I pray that you just help us as we do the work of listening, of reading through Scripture, of considering the passage, examining the words. And, Father, that we would come to understand what your Spirit is trying to teach us through this encounter. Lord, I pray that you bless us during this time in your name. Amen. Initially, I titled this message, Eating with the Enemy, as Jesus is invited to the house of the ruler of the Pharisees. Now, a ruler, it defines it's a prominent member of the Pharisee. Most likely, he was a member of the Sanhedrin, which was a special group uh, given to a council of 71 Jewish wise men or sages who constituted the Supreme Court and the legislative body in Judea during the Roman period. So this was a very important council. This was a very important man. And here Jesus is invited to come and have dinner with this man and his friends. Now, this isn't the first time Jesus has been invited uh, to the dinner or to a religious, uh, to the house of a religious leader to eat and dine with him. We've seen it several times in Luke already. Uh, But this was a common courtesy that was given to someone who taught at the synagogue. As Jesus went each Sabbath, he would teach at a synagogue. So it was common afterwards just to invite that teacher to dinner, to talk with him, get to know him a little bit more. 
But this is, we're looking at Luke's gospel. This is the fourth time in Luke's gospel alone that Jesus and the religious leaders have had a conflict over the Sabbath. You might recall in Luke chapter 6 that they complained and questioned why Jesus' disciples were pulling grain off the eaves of corn as they were walking through, or wheat as they were walking in the fields. Again in Luke 6, they were furious when Jesus healed a man who had a withered hand. Back in Luke chapter 13, not too long ago, a month or so ago, they they were humiliated as Jesus heals a woman and the people took Jesus aside and rejoiced instead of condemning him. And now as we come to Luke chapter 14, we're going to read that they are silenced as Jesus confronts their hardened hearts. However, Luke points out that this is no ordinary appreciation dinner as he writes that the religious leaders had invited Jesus with the intention to watch him carefully. Did you see that? And they were watching him carefully. They're setting a trap. They're wanting to see what Jesus may say or do that they can use to accuse him, to arrest him, to have him killed. They were setting a trap for him. Dr. Thomas Schreiner notes that they are observing Jesus with suspicion, looking to find fault, kind of as we talked about in the introduction. No one likes that, but here's Jesus eating, and he's under the microscope. We have noticed that as we've worked our way through Luke's gospel, that the religious leaders are becoming more and more infuriated with the ministry of Christ. At first, they were, there was curiosity. There was amazement at his teaching. There was wonder that, uh, of all the, uh, the miracles he was doing. But eventually that morphed into bewilderment and concern as they recognized that Jesus was taking their followers from them and teaching something different. That eventually led to anger and jealousy that eventually would lead them to seek a way to accuse him and silence him in any way possible. Now Luke's eyewitness, again, Luke was not there, but he's speaking to eyewitness accounts of that day. They testified that at that particular dinner, as they were being watched by the religious leaders, that there was a man who had dropsy who was in the room. Now, dropsy is an an edema. It's an abnormal swelling from accumulated fluids. We may think of gout today or something similar to that way, or arthritis. This would have made the man ritually unclean who could not attend the temple worship or to be touched. Now, we're not told whether the religious leaders purposely invited that man, as in those days, uh, invited that man to set a trap, or as in those days, it was common that when you had a dinner, that outsiders were allowed to look in the windows or actually go into your house and sit around the walls to listen and to watch the conversation. That's just, that's just kind of odd to me. So we don't know whether this man was invited or if he was just part of the ordinary crowd that wanted to see Jesus, maybe, maybe just hoping and praying that Jesus would notice him and heal him. We're not really told, but in any case, the religious leaders are watching Jesus see how he's going to respond to this man. It would probably have been very noticeable that this man had this condition. Dropsy can lead to heart failure, can lead to liver and kidney damage. A person with this condition can suffer from skin depressions and chest and an abominable pain, as well as urine reduction and trouble breathing. So this is something that this man is actually suffering from. 
Now, though it's not as drastic as blindness or lameness or deafness or some other critical injury or even uh, illness, this man's life was full of suffering with probably not much chance of relief in those days. They just did not have the ability or the knowledge of how to treat this man. So he had no uh, hope of ending his suffering. And knowing their wicked and hardened hearts as Jesus sees this man and he sees them, he understands their motivation in inviting him, Jesus, to the dinner. Jesus asked them a simple question that he had asked previously religious leaders in the past. He asked, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? Now you can imagine here, here's this man. All of a sudden, he becomes almost the center of attention. Jesus noticed this man, knows who he is. He created this man. He had sovereignly, purposely, sovereignly given this man this edema. And here he is. He's able to be healed. Jesus could heal him. But yet Jesus understands that these men's hearts would be very upset if Jesus reaches out and touches and heals this man. So is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? Now, how would you answer that question if you see someone suffering? If someone came in here today and we saw their suffering and you and I had the ability in some form or fashion to give this person relief, but it was a Saturday and Rob is supposed to be preaching, would we take a moment to pray, to care for that person? I can guarantee you if I'm sitting here in our church and we saw someone just come into our church that we did not know and they were weeping at our setting as we're saying, I can guarantee you we are stopping And praying for that person. And see what type of comfort we can give them. Imagine being in that room. Everyone notices what's going on. They are aware of what the religious leaders are doing. They see the suffering of the man. They are expecting Jesus to heal him as he's done to many others. It was probably very quiet as they wait to hear the response of the Pharisees. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? That you could almost hear a pin drop. It's probably that quiet. No one wants to miss how they're going to answer. Yet all they hear are crickets as the religious leaders remained silent. They would not answer. They refused to answer Jesus' simple question and the sounds of silence was deafening and spoke volumes much more than if they were to open their mouth and give an answer. Jesus doesn't let their attitude sway him from setting this man at liberty as he took him and healed him and sent him away. Jesus would not let their hardened hearts keep this man enslaved to suffering any longer. Interesting, Jesus tells the man to leave immediately after healing him. Did you see that? He heals him and then he sends him out of the house most likely to save him from any further embarrassment. As Jesus now turns towards the religious leaders, puts his focus on them and scolds them in verse five by saying, which of you having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day will not immediately pull him out. Now, all of a sudden the tables are turned as the examinee becomes the examiner. The focus is now not put on Jesus, but now it is the religious leaders who are being carefully watched 
by Jesus, the disciples, and the people? How will they respond? Jesus here is referring to a common occurrence in those days, especially those that raised livestock for a living. Remember, these religious leaders were experts in the law of Moses. They were the ones who dictated the ins and the outs of Yahweh's expectations and requirements for his children. They should have shouted over each other with the correct answer. We find it in Deuteronomy chapter 22. It's here on the monitor for your for your for your for you to see. Where Moses says, you shall not see your brother's ox or sheep going astray and ignore them. You, you can't see you, you. Just as you and I would see a child walking around the beach or in some public place or maybe in your neighborhood just wandering around, maybe crying. You would not ignore that child or that person. You and I would put our attention on them. We would seek to help them. He says in the same way, if you see your brother's ox or a sheep going astray and ignore them, you do not do that. You shall take them back to your brother. Now look at this. And if he does not live near you and you do not know whose ox or, or livestock it is, you shall bring it to your house and it shall stay there with you until your brother seeks it. In other words, not only do you have to bring it home, you now need to feed and take care of that livestock until when? Until that brother, the one who owns it, finds it. You might send out word, hey, we're looking for it. You might find someone who's wandering around the field, hey, I'm looking for this. You had to not only take it in and give it shelter, but you now had to feed it and take care of it. Then you shall restore it to him. And you shall do the same with the donkey or with his garment or with any lost thing of your brothers, which he loses and you find you may not ignore it. How often do we ignore those around us? You shall not see your brother's donkey or his ox fallen down by the way and ignore them. Jesus is referring right here to the Mosaic law. The experts of the law should have said, well, of course we need to get it. It tells us you shall help him to lift it up again. This is the command. This is what we should do. It is very clear that part of loving your neighbor is to help them in their time of need. Again, what is the, the sum of the law? Love God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Just because it was the Sabbath did not mean that one could ignore a neighbor in need. We've seen this uh, several weeks ago when we looked at uh, the one in chapter 13. Jesus understood this perfectly, that we are called to heal, to serve, to give help, to take care of one another, even on the Sabbath, if not more so on the Sabbath. That's why many times I open my prayer up with a desire for us to use our spiritual gifts. When? To build up each other. And when are we mainly together? On a Sunday, on our Sabbath, so to speak. This prime or this incident of them refusing to help someone, of being silent, is a prime example of Jesus' previous lament in chapter 13 of Luke, where he says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. Behold, your house is forsaken. Remember several weeks ago, Jesus lamented over Jerusalem. 
I desire to save you. I desire to set you at liberty. I desire to bring you back in. But you are not willing. The sound of your silence is deafening. You do not love. You do not care. This is why Jerusalem will be left desolate, hardened hearts that refuse to be examined and teachable. So let me say this real quickly. Let not your heart be hardened. Uh, young person, a husband, spouse, wife, whatever, is be teachable. Allow your life to be examined so that we may learn to love better. Thomas Schreiner writes that the religious leaders do not grasp or embrace the will of God in Jesus. This stubbornness comes from a hardened heart. They would rather watch and catch Jesus in doing something wrong than to embrace him. My question is exactly, what is it do they object to? What, do they object to the healing itself? Is it so wrong to heal a man who's suffering from, from this type of condition? Is that, is that really the issue? Or would it, are they upset because the man who had dropsy is considered unclean and he shouldn't be in the house? And maybe because they believe that if a man was sick, that it was God's judgment, so this man deserved to suffer? Seems harsh, but you and I many times have the same thing. We'll think of the homeless, maybe the transit, those who are maybe suffering from some type of financial. You know, they earn it. It's their choice. And all of those things may be true in, in some regard, but that doesn't absolve us of our responsibility to help, to serve, to love, to see, to acknowledge? Or is it just the day of healing since it was the Sabbath? Hey, you can heal him all the time you want. You had six days to heal him. Just don't do it on the Sabbath. That, that just seems kind of harsh. That's obviously not what Jesus is, or uh, Yahweh is teaching in the Mosaic Law. Now, it was true that there were some religious leaders who believed that if an animal fell into a pit or into a well, you were not to save him and pull him out. What you would do is instead is they would put food by him so that he could survive until the next day. That seems like work to me. It seems like it would just be easier just to get him out. Or did they just object to the person of Jesus? showing mercy and assuming authority over their interpretations and application of the law. He just doesn't do it like us. What he wants to do is dethrone us. But what causes someone to be so hardened of heart? Let me ask you that. What causes someone to be so hardened of heart that they would be so cruel? And it is cruelty as to prevent and become furious that someone heals or does good on the Sabbath. This so upset them that they were determined to kill Jesus for doing so. This is a good example of when rules, traditions, and rituals run amok and wind up hurting others. Now you just deserve what you get. And before you get too hard on these Pharisees, you and I many times have done this with our spouse, with our wife, or husband. We've done this with our children. My rules must be obeyed. And you're going to get what you deserve. As we have discipline and harshness and cruelty and throw mercy and compassion and kindness out the door. 
as we think that the rules are more important than those things. Now, I know several weeks ago, we went over some of the requirements and the purposes of the Sabbath when we looked at the last passage in chapter 13. But I want to take, again, a little bit of time just, again, to look at the Sabbath and why this was so important to them and what's the purpose. And this week, we're going to look more like at the purpose. What is the purpose for you and I? How does that work for you and I today? So first, I just want to give you the history of the Sabbath. We first see it in creation. So it it begins in Genesis chapter 2 at the beginning of time when it says, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them as as God finished his creation. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the Sabbath day from all the work that he'd done. And God blessed the seventh, and he made it holy, because on it God created rest from all his work, they had done. So it was set apart. There was something about that day. That's what saying, uh, uh, make it holy means. It's set apart as a day of rest. It's first mentioned as something that, that men should um, observe in Exodus 16, where it says on the sixth day, uh, speaking of the, 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 um, uh, the people of, of Israel, they gathered twice as much bread, two omers each, speaking of the manna, so that they could have Friday or the Sabbath off. Remember, they go from uh, sundown Friday to, uh, to sundown on Saturday. That would be the day for them. But then it's codified into law in the, with the fourth commandment in Exodus 20, where, where God says, remember the Sabbath day, keep it holy. Six days shall do labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath. You shall do no work on that day. You shall rest. The Lord blessed the Sabbath and he made it holy. Now the Westminster Confession uh, captures scripture's teaching on the Sabbath with a series of questions and answers that I want to share with you. So the first question is, what is required in the fourth, uh, fourth commandment? Well, the fourth commandment requires that the keeping holy uh, to God such set times as he is appointed in his word. Expressly one whole day in seven to be a holy Sabbath to himself. A day that's set aside for worship and recognizing who God is. The next question is, which day of the seven is God appointed to be the weekly Sabbath? Well, from the creation of the world to the resurrection of Christ, God appointed the seventh day of the week to be the weekly Sabbath, what you and I would call Saturday, and the first day of the week ever since Christ's resurrection to continue to the end of the world, which is the Christian Sabbath. So you and I now express that on Sunday. The next question is, well, how is the Sabbath to be sanctified? How is it to be set apart? How is it to be made a holy The confession says one day in seven should be especially devoted to corporate worship and other spiritual exercises that restore the soul's rest in God and zeal for his name. It should provide physical refreshment and fit for one or and fit one for a week of devoted service to Christ. And we spoke a little bit more on that is the Sabbath is is important for you and I. The next question is what is forbidden in the fourth commandment? The fourth commandment forbids dishonoring the Lord's day by actions or thoughts that divert the soul from spiritual refreshment or deprive the body of renewed energy or distract the mind from its special Sabbath focus on the Lord. So in that, even though that's the Westman Commission uh, given, you know, 1700 years after Christ, how does Christ break any of that by healing, by doing good on the Sabbath? I think a reasonable mind would say not at all. He's following the Mosaic law of Deuteronomy. And the Sabbath was something that was taken 
very seriously. In Numbers 15, we saw this uh, quite a while ago, a punishment for Sabbath breakers. They, they catch one man just gathering sticks. All he's doing is gathering sticks on the Sabbath for a fire. Some people see him out there doing it. And what happens is they wind up grabbing him, bringing him to Moses, and the whole tribe, or the whole, the whole Hebrew children, wind up stoning him to death for gathering sticks on the Sabbath. So it was an important rule. So this, the, the religious leaders, in their defense, they are trying to keep someone from being stoned to death. Maybe. But let's give them that. But yet there is enough caveats there to see that doing good was not hurting the Sabbath. It was not dishonoring God. If anything, it was focusing more on God and loving our neighbors. The ESV Study Bible notes that these words, speaking of the Sabbath, provide the basis for the obligation that God has placed on the Israelites to rest from their normal labor on the Sabbath day, not to not to do good, to refuse to do good, but just to rest. To the Jews of Jesus' day, the Sabbath was a joyful festival. It was a sign of the covenant that God had made with them. No other, uh, no other um, nations around them were observing a Sabbath. There was not a six-day work week and then, hey, take a day off. So they were unique in that way. It was a reminder of the divine creation of the six days. It provided the rules that were to obey on the, on the limitations of what they were to do. But it was also a means of gaining merit for Israel. It was something that they were due to please God. It was part of the covenant. However, the Pharisees, the teachers, and the leaders had taken the law of the Sabbath and had added so many more regulations and rules than what God had actually given them. They had interpreted and applied so many things that they actually created heavy burdens on people. Even sadly, as we look at it, 1,000 Jews died early in the Maccabean revolt between the Old Testament and New Testament. 1,000 men died because they refused to defend themselves against, uh, against, against an army because it was on the Sabbath. That's how, how much they said, we're not going to do anything. They put down their arms, they would not fight and allowed themselves to be slaughtered without a fight. But you and I need to remember the purpose of the Sabbath. Turn, if you would, to Matthew chapter 12, as just as a reminder. The Sabbath was designed for man's rest and well-being. <clears throat> it was never intended to be a yoke of bondage. It was intended for man, not man, for the Sabbath. According to Jesus in Matthew chapter 12, are you there? We're going to read verses 3 through 7. 3 through 7. The Sabbath was never meant to restrict the need of necessity. If you needed something, you had to go get it. Jesus said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry? And those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests. He's, he's speaking of the time when, when Saul and his army uh, and his men, they were running from Saul who was trying to kill them, King Saul. And it came to a day where they had no food, so they went to one of the, the temple worships. And all they had was the, the bread that was offered to the Lord. You were not to touch it. It was only for the priest. A common man could not eat of it. But David and his men were famished. 
They needed to eat. They hadn't had food. There was, there was no 7-Eleven. There's no grocery store from the dropout. There was no Uber or, or Dar- DoorDash that could bring them food. So all that was there was that which was told them, you cannot eat. But what does God tell them to do? Yeah, eat this bread. It was not to restrict someone who was truly in need. In verse 5, we see that it did not restrict service to God. As Jesus goes on, or have you not read in the law how the Sabbath, on, on the Sabbath, the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? What does that mean? Well, on the Sabbath, guess who's doing work? The priest. The priest did not take a day off of lighting the lamps and doing all the different things. They had to continue taking care of the temple, but yet they are held guiltless. So in other words, it's not to restrict service to God. There are times where you and I, if, if we were to go out and feed the homeless on a, on a Sunday, kind of like what Matthew does, or, or do good to someone else, say someone says, man, you know, my house, my, something happened in my house, I need help today. Would it be wrong for us to go after church and help someone work on their house? No. For you to say, no, I, I've got a day of rest. I'm going to go home and watch the Passion of Christ. I'm going to go home and read the whole New Testament to this afternoon. I can't do that. That'd be wrong. But also in verse 6, it was not to restrict acts of mercy. I tell you, something greater than the temple is here, speaking of himself. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and sacrifice, you would not have condemned condemned the guiltless. We're to do mercy. So should we help someone on the Sabbath? Of course we should. In our passage today, once again, Jesus challenges their interpretation of the law, and he reiterates God's true word, true desire is for you and I to show mercy. Thomas Schreiner notes that the Sabbath is the most fitting day of all the days to heal because it's a day of rejoicing, of freedom, and of liberation. It's pointing back to the Lord liberating his people from Egypt. It was proper and right that Jesus show compassion, kindness, and justice in healing this poor man to relieve him of his suffering. Scriptures did not prevent him from doing so. The Mosaic law did not prevent him from doing this. The Sabbath restricted man's work, not God's. And that's what you and I have to understand. As these men looked at what Jesus was to do, and they were essentially saying, God, don't touch him. We would rather him suffer for a few more hours for another day rather than the God work in his life. That's really what is in these religious leaders' hearts. The Sabbath restricted man's work, not God's. These poor fools had embraced a failed religious system, not of God's making, but twisted scripture to suit their own self-righteous, proudful attitudes. This was a wickedness that leads not only to silence, but also death as they reject Christ's proclamation of the kingdom of God. Where Jesus, as the Messiah, the Son of the God, came to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of the sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed and proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus was doing the exact will of the Father at that dinner. Above all, 
The Sabbath points to the final day of rest that's promised in Scripture in which all things will be made new and all suffering will be eliminated and all affliction will be healed. Looking at the monitor, John MacArthur, we looked at this several weeks ago, writes that establishing the pattern for man's work cycle, he only modeled the need for rest. God made it holy or set apart the Sabbath day because he rested in it. Later, it was set aside for a day of worship in the Mosaic law, and it distinguishes between the physical rest and the redemptive rest to which it pointed. There is a rest in which one day you and I will no longer work, where we will no longer suffer, where we will no longer uh, uh, have illness. The basic truth, if you're wanting to understand what the basic truth that's being taught here, the basic spiritual truth found in this passage is that you and I are called to love our neighbors. You and I are called to love our neighbors and commit to do no harm by withholding good from others. And this is what we're finding here. Their sound of silence was doing harm to others. In Micah 6.8, the prophet says to Yahweh, he has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. So you and I are to love God, but also love our neighbors by not withholding that which our neighbors need. So, how should you and I apply this truth? You and I are not called on the Sabbath to heal. I wish that we could. I believe that we can pray for healing. I believe we can come together, and we should do so. But the question I have is, how is what, what doctrine, or how does doctrine taught in this passage? What is that you and I need to understand? What rebuke should you and I accept? See, you and I are thinking that we're Jesus' disciples of the man in dropsy, but to be honest, in this story, you are the Pharisee. I am the Pharisee. See, we always think as we read scripture that we put ourselves in there and we would be the one that would shout, Jesus, I know the answer. It's yes, it is lawful. But you and I most likely would be like the religious leaders saying, uh, I don't think that's really a good idea. Aren't you going to be here tomorrow? We can get here early and you can heal him then. So how, what rebuke do you and I need? What corrective action needs to be taken in our lives? Or what training do you and I need to commit from in this passage in loving others? I want to give you three things. First, I would start by encouraging all of us to take up the grace habit of dinner table uh, conversations. As they are a great way to make disciples. We are attempting these last few years to install this scripture command as a part of discipleship endeavors here at OVBC. We believe that the best way that we can encourage and instruct one another is not only through the preaching of God's word, through our, or maybe our small groups as well as our adult core classes, but really it's through our kitchen tabletop encounters. In other words, we want to get together around your kitchen table and talk to you about life. What do you do for a living? How is work going? Are there any struggles you're having? How's the family? How's the marriage? How's the in-laws? 
Hey, what way can we supply what is lacking in your faith? I, uh, several years ago, I think this is our third year maybe of doing small groups on Friday. We used to just almost, they were almost just kind of like Bible studies. But about three years ago, we all decided to, 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 to join in, in meeting together. We meet at six o'clock and have a dinner together. Uh, all the kids are there. It's just a great time. Uh, then we break up and then we have our small groups where we talk together about what scripture has to say. And then we break up in men groups as men and, and women with some child care. And so that we can encourage one another, talk for one another, and pray one another. And I have found that we have grown in those areas that way faster and better than in any other way that I've found. And I'm so thankful for them bringing And that wasn't my idea. I actually resisted that idea. I was just so thankful for Landon and Nicole who said, hey, we see this working. And at that time, it was the married couple. We see this working. Let's try this. And, and, and to be honest, I couldn't see us moving away. Yeah, it's intergenerational. It is messy. Sometimes the kids are, are loud and they, and, they, and they want to interrupt. But you know what? That's okay. So what if the kids come out and see us talking about the Bible? So what if the kids escape our, our child care worker and sees their mom or dad praying for someone else? Oh my goodness. I want them to see that. I know it's difficult having the children here sometimes. They, they can be noisy and loud as well. But, but I want to share with you, this is how they see. They see us worshiping. They see us singing together. They see us standing, paying attention and listening to someone read a book 2,000 years ago. And sure, they're squirmy and they're messy and they're, they're not wanting to pay attention, but they're catching it. Let me ask you a quick question. You know what? I need to make a note because I'm off. I'm off. I'm going to lose myself. I'm way off. I'm my way off track. Where am I? I don't know. Okay, there I am. Let me ask, what did you have for dinner Wednesday night? Shout it out. Sorry for those who may be watching this on video. Spaghetti. Anybody else? Pizza. Oh, so, so Wednesday was pasta day? What you, would you have last the Wednesday previous? Tamales. Okay. Let me pick another day. Someone knows what Wednesday is. What did you have on um, May 11th, 2019? Probably birthday cake. Here's what I'm getting. You don't know what you ate, maybe even last night, or the day before, the day, or years ago, but you have been sustained by that food. And so when I have parents that come and say, but, but my kid isn't going to learn anything while they're sitting here. Let me tell you, your child is being fed every Sunday morning. And they may not remember what I have said or all or understand what all I've said or how I've made what I've said, but it will sustain them in the long run as it will sustain you. Because I doubt you could tell me what I preached about last week or the week before. I struggle knowing that because this morning I was praying about the message for next week and I had to be like the coach. No, play the game today, not next week. I struggle with that. So the kitchen table counters is that time where we just get close and get nitty gritty. How can I pray for you? And I was just so thankful. I think what was I was meeting with one of the fired guys and I said, hey, man, how can I pray for you? Give me something. But then he said, how can I pray for you? This is the fire chief. How can I pray for you? No one really ever asked the pastor what you could pray for. But I tell you what, there are men on Friday night that are praying around me and asking me. And I can't give them some silly answer. I, I got to talk to them. I got to be real. 
This is what you and I need. So these dinner table conversations, even though that's not the point of this story, but I would say that when we are together and we are breaking bread, even if it's next week, we should watch each other carefully so that we can see what part of their mask is falling apart so that we can help and encourage. There are people here, you may not be suffering from dropsy of the physical, uh, physical body, but you have some dropsy of the spiritual soul. You're just retaining something that you cannot get rid of and in the bitterness, the resentment, the unforgiveness is just weighing at you and you're having heart difficulties. Secondly, we are commanded to take every opportunity to do good. Look at scripture here. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another, to everyone. Second Thessalonians, again, do not grow weary in doing good. Third John says, beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. And then Hebrews 13, very simple. Do not neglect to do good. These commands are imperatives. That's kind of an oxymoron. These are things that we are expected and required to do as children of God. However, many times, listen to this, because this is how you and I are a Pharisee today. We are neglectful in doing good. And by not doing good, we are actually doing harm. This also is sin. In James 4, 17, we read, So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is what? Sin. If you know your brother is in need, and you have the opportunity to meet that need, and if you refuse, neglect, or blinded to it, blind yourself to it, then you are a Pharisee. You have spoken about your love for God through the sound of silence by ignoring that need. To neglect or refuse to do good is a sin of omission. Now, usually you and I think of sins of commission, those things that we are to do. But there's also sins of omission where we know to do right, where we know what God expects us and we should do it, but yet we do not do it. And we make all sorts of excuses. Jesus, don't heal. It's the Sabbath. Jesus, don't heal. It is dinner time. Jesus, don't heal him. He deserves this. He is unclean, ceremoniously unclean. This is what the religious leaders were guilty of. A sin of omission. They didn't hurt this man. They didn't give him uh, edema. That was by the hand of God. Yet it was also by the hand of God that Jesus was was there and so was that man. A purposeful, sovereign event in which God was going to heal this man through Jesus Christ. Jesus could say, you know, right, we'll do it tomorrow. But what if tomorrow doesn't come? What if tomorrow is gone? We miss that opportunity. You and I are commanded to take every opportunity to do good. Thirdly, and this is where I want to get down to it. Give me, your, give me your attention just for a few more minutes. 
Thirdly, you and I need to consider in which ways our sound of silence, our sin of omission, is hurting others. What I mean by that is what are you and I withholding from others? Let me be more specific. What are you withholding from others due to your hardened heart and stubborn heart? In other words, from our scripture reading earlier that Landon gave us, we learned that God has called us as disciples of Christ to put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience. We're to forgive one another as Christ has forgiven us. My question is, how many of you have just demonstrated your stubborn hardened heart with a sound of silence in neglecting, refusing, or omitting to offer these to your brothers and sisters? Who in your life has hurt you? Who in your life has been bitter towards you? Who are you holding resentment to that you are not being compassionate towards? They deserve what they got. In what way are you not being kind to someone else with your tongue? Maybe it's in humility. I feel better than than them. Maybe it's, it's meekness and not understanding that you, by the grace of God, could be in the same shoes. Maybe it's by forgetting or, 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 or withholding patience to someone. You're always speaking to them harshly as if they're bothering you and keeping you from doing that which is important. Who is it that you're refusing to forgive? David Garland in his commentary, and I want you to read this, and I want to spend just a second on this. He writes on this passage that people can be quite legalistic in strictly applying rules to others, but when they are hit with similar problems, they are quick to bend them. This becomes a crisis, or it becomes a crisis for which loopholes can be found. Yes, I know the scripture tells me to love my wife or to submit to my husband. I know it tells me not to frustrate my children. But in what ways are we doing that, saying that it's good for thee but not for me? You don't understand my situation. I am not going to offer them grace because they're on the last straw. I cannot forgive them because they're on 400 and whatever the number is. 70 times 7, 490. They're on 489. And if I forgive them, then that's it. That last time. Did I do the math right? Okay, good. Because someone out there is watching carefully and they've got their calculator out and they're trying to find out if I'm right or wrong. See, we're talking about you now. You and I are the Pharisee. We're withholding that which is good for them. Think of this. In what ways are we not loving our wives, submitting to our husbands, disobeying our parents? Which ways are we frustrating our children and dishonoring our employers and employees? If you go on in Colossians 3, those are some of the things. These commands are not suggestions, but commands from a loving, holy God who desires his best for us. And when we do not, when we refuse to put those on, it is you and I that are hurting not only ourselves, disobeying God, but hurting others by withholding that which they need. This happens when we love God with all of our hearts and we love our neighbors ourselves is when we put those on. Paul writes in Colossians 2.13, you've heard me say this. When Paul writes, and you who were dead in your trespasses and sins, 
and the uncircumcision of your flesh, when God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with these legal demands. This means that those who have hurt us, trespassed against us, who have done some harm to us, we have no right to take off that cross which Jesus has nailed. He says when he writes, when he has disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing them, he is talking about you when you do not forgive. When you pull down something off the cross that God is forgiving, you are the authority and the, and the rulers that he has disarmed. Who are you to take what God has forgiven and, 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 and hit someone else over the head with it by withholding forgiveness? entertaining resentment and bitterness. Who are you to do so? But that's what you and I are. We find ourselves in the place of Satan, the accuser of the brethren, waiting for someone to mess up so we can bring something back to hit them with. Let us not be guilty of withholding the wonderful gifts that God has given us. And what are those? Forgiveness, patience, kindness. Those are the fruits of the Spirit. You and I have no right to withhold from others that which God has so graciously given you. The warning is you must forgive as God has forgives you. If you do not forgive, God will what? Not forgive you. Let us not be guilty of the sound of silence due to a hardened, stubborn heart. Let's not withhold from others that which God has given to us. Galatians 6.10, I'll close with this. As we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are the household of faith. Let us love God with all our heart, soul, and mind, and our neighbor as herself, by giving that which God has given to us. Amen? Every head bowed, every eye closed. Worship team, if you make your way up, and Randy as well, come for pastor's prayer. I just want you to take a moment to just pause and consider what I've shared. You and I are the Pharisees. Each and every one of us, because we are human and we are frail, withhold good from others. We may not mean to. We may not understand that we're doing it. But in this point, you now have no reason not to understand what God's word has said. I think it's been clear. If not, I pray the Holy Spirit will continue to work in your heart. So I want you to pause and consider. Is there a doctrine that you just learned? Is there a rebuke that you need to accept and say, man, I have been withholding. Do you need a correction? Help me. I've been wrong. And you go to someone, I've been withholding forgiveness or I've been holding on to bitterness. I need you to forgive me. Or maybe there's training in righteousness. Maybe it's say, hey, pastor, elders, someone, can you help me to love, to give, to see with the heart of Christ? Many times these are habits that you and I need to develop. There may be their skills that we can acquire, but God can give us all things that pertain to life and holiness and godliness. This is his promise as we commit and covenant together. And let us pray that the Holy Spirit will respond, you will respond the Holy Spirit's work in your life this week.
We hope you have enjoyed this week's message. We encourage you to share it with others. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at info at orangevilla.org. Be sure and join us for next week's message by subscribing to this podcast. To learn more about our ministry, submit prayer requests, or to find ways you can help hear the gospel, visit us online at orangevilla.org. Till next time, we hope the grace and peace of God's love be ever present in your life.